0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan History here. I got Bernard Cornwall back on the podcast. Last time we met, it was in happier times. Uh, it was a few years ago. We were in West London. We drank a huge amount of his favorite Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey. Can't remember which one on stage and answered questions from a big live audience, all hugging and breathing and celebrating fellowship in the same room as each other. This time he's back, he's talking about his latest juggernaut, his latest book on Utrid uh, of Bedenburg, The Warlord Chronicles. It's the final one. It's the climax. It's the big one. Utrid's going to Brunnerborough, everybody. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that History Hit was lucky enough to follow the wonderful Wirral archaeologists as they think they might have identified the the famous battlefield, the lost battlefield, the battlefield where England was forged, kind of, just across the River Mersey from modern Liverpool. Anyway, Bernard Cornwall was in great form. It was a uh, a great treat talking to him. History Hit subscribers were able to ask him the odd question, as you'll hear. If you want to join History, if you want to watch our documentary that we filmed on the field of Brunnerborough, if you want to listen as we interview some of the world's best historians, please go to historyhit.tv. It is still Trafalgar Week, so we are running our ridiculous Trafalgar giveaway, which pains me to say it because it's so unbelievably cheap. If you use the code TRAFALGAR, trafalgar you get a month for free and then three months just one pound euro or dollar it's crazy stuff it ends this weekend so get it while you can enjoy but thank you very much for coming back on the podcast
1: thank you for having me dad
0: last time this is a sad echo of last time we had a big audience and you made me drink about a bottle of whiskey on stage so we might make a bit more sense this time
1: i hope so yes i remember that One of your assistants was kind enough to ask what I would like. I think she thought I'd say a glass of water. I said a bottle of Jameson's.
0: (laughs) Oh, that was so fun, though. It was brilliant. And so, anyway, we'll make the best of it on this occasion. What are your feelings when you bring one of your long franchises, your long series, to a finish? This recent book is, Uhtred of Beddenberg book, is the last of the series. Are you quite glad to get rid of it, or are you a bit sad?
1: Not glad. No, I mean, there's a certain reluctance to let go. I mean, I've lived with a man for 15 years, and as you know, when you write a book, that book sort of consumes your life. You dream it, you think it. And so I spent an awful lot of time in his company over the last 15 years. So there was a certain regret in saying, OK, enough is enough. But the story was, a, was at an end, so it was time to finish.
0: The history is obviously extremely unclear and fragmentary, but there's a lot of high politics in this book. Is that something you found yourself fascinated by?
1: No, it's something I found myself condemned to describe. <laughs> um, I mean, we know a fair bit about that decade that sort of leads up to Brunnenberg And I mean, much of it is Athelstan trying to impose his authority over the whole island of Britain. And so, yes, as you say, there's a lot of high politics in it.
0: You said you were forced to get it in, but you write so well about the, the machinations of warlords and petty kings. I mean, do you f- have an affinity for that period, the early modern, the uh, you know, pre-Norman conquest England? Yes, I have a great love
1: of that period. I always wanted to write a series of books which describe the making of England because it seems to me something which we English know nothing about. I mean, like you, I think I received a good education in England, a historical education, but it really didn't deal with that at all. I mean, the only thing I remember from primary school is being taught that King Alfred was a very bad cake
0: maker. Uh, to this day, I just, it's so weird to me that we all too often number our kings and start our sort of year era history at 1066. I mean, I just, I actually don't, I don't understand that. No,
1: I don't. I mean, except obviously battles are turning points in history and Hastings was an enormous turning point in, in English history. So in some sense, that became the starting point. But Brunenberg was just as big a turning point in many ways. And it deserves to be much, much better known, if not celebrated.
0: Well, your description of it is typically brilliant. I mean, what did you learn as the books went on in terms of history, do you think? Did the way you write about those battles, those engagements, their religious views, did they change and evolve through these 15 years?
1: Well, I hope they did, but I'm probably not very aware of it, as I'm not terribly self-reflective. I mean, I think what came out of that series for me was first a huge admiration for Alfred. And he is very much the... The man who dreamed up England, even if he didn't live to see it made. And secondly, just how the story of England's making is such a bloody business. I mean, it was 40 years of warfare and England was forged by battle. And it does seem to me that it's a story worth knowing. But by itself, I mean, that's just, if you like, the big story at the back of the book. The, short, the small story is Utrecht, which is all fiction. Um, so that was where much
0: of the fun lay. And you, I take it, are not stopping. You're not stopping with the end of this series. What can you tell us about the future for Bernard Cornwall, the juggernaut?
1: I can only tell you about the book I'm writing now, but uh, beyond that, I have no idea. I've gone back to Sharp. I've gone from the 10th century to the early 19th century. And uh, Richard Sharp is marching again. I always wanted to write at least one more. Probably will write at least one more.
0: Richard Sharp marches again. There we ask whether it's in the peninsula or India or... Again, I'm
1: interested in what happened immediately after Waterloo, which, again, is a period which we never read about or learn about. But there was enough nastiness going on to keep Richard Sharp busy.
0: Yes, indeed, there was. And we know his son turns up in the American Civil War. He does a little cameo there as well. I loved your book on Shakespeare and the Tudors. I mean, do you feel that you want to stick with certain periods that you feel familiar with, or is there an urge to, to strike out? And do you have other periods you like to write about?
1: I think you have to love the period you're working with. And there are some periods I simply can't even imagine writing about. I mean, the the mid-Victorians, just mid-19th century, bores me to death. I mean, I I don't know what I'm going to do once I finish this book. I mean, I have an idea for maybe a couple more sharks. So maybe that's the next two or three years. I just don't know. But if it goes anywhere, I suspect I'll go back to medieval.
0: Well, you're a sailor and you write beautifully about sailing, so I hope there's a maritime bent to it. I always like it when you take a... A hero that's pretty land based, but you turn them into amphibians, you, like whether it's Utrid or Sharp, you, you, give them a, you give them a bit of time at sea. I always like that.
1: Well, Sharp doesn't get much time at sea. The one book, Trafalgar, but.
0: Uh, you know, I, th- I thought it was good that he was at Trafalgar. I was, a big, I was a big fan of that. You've sold more books than most authors in the history of the world. Why do you think you sell great books? I'm not an historian,
1: I'm a storyteller. And I think what people like about books is they like a good story, they want to see how it all turns out, how it ends. And for me, that's the joy of writing a book, is to find out how it ends.
0: Are your books gateway drugs for history? I mean, should they be seen like that? Above
1: all else, they're, I hope they're entertainment, that people enjoy them. But if at the end of it, you're wondering, well, I wonder if that's exactly what happened, then it may drive you to go and look up the real history. I mean, that's what happened to me when I was young. I read Hornblower. And C.S. Forrester only wrote 11 Hornblower books and I consumed those pretty fast. And at the end of it, there was nothing left to read. So I went and found the real histories of the Peninsular War. That really was the beginning of Sharp.
0: Do you read a lot of non you still read a lot of history? I read an immense amount of history, yes. Are there any historians that have opened up your eyes to a completely new period where you think, oh, I'd love to have a little dig at that time? It
1: does happen.
0: But, you know, I'm getting old and ancient. And I'm thinking,
1: do I really
0: want to spend five years researching that period before I start writing it? I don't know. How important do you think is the historical research? You and I have talked about this before. I mean, you say it's about writing great story, but it has to somehow feel that there is a a, a real world that's built around it. Yeah, the world behind it
1: has to be authentic. And that's where the research is. I mean, it's really quite easy to discover what happened. It's difficult to find out how people lived.
0: Speaking of which, you're very involved in the team at Brunerborough, the battlefield that we may or may not have discovered, we hope we have, on the Wirral. Are you excited about the next year's dig? Of course, this year has been so interrupted by COVID, but what they might discover next.
1: I'm very excited, yes. I mean, I know, for instance, that they're pretty sure they found a grave pit, but they haven't had permission to excavate it yet. I mean, I think the grave pit should nail it down, but we'll see. I mean, I'm convinced they have found the site, the battle site, the number of artifacts they've, they've discovered. They've got some very sophisticated ground radar equipment and so on. So I think there's a lot still to find. But as far as I'm concerned, and I walked the battlefield
0: with them and looked at a lot of the stuff they dug up, they've done it. I agree. And also, you make the case in your books, but geographically it seems logical. The main enemy is ANLAF, and ANLAF comes from Dublin. And all the chronicles say
1: he brought a big fleet. One chronicle says he brought 710 ships across. Now, he's got a choice. I mean, a lot of people want battle to have been fought on the East Coast in Yorkshire. Are you going to sail halfway around Britain? You're not. You're going to make the quickest, easiest crossing you can, which takes you into, obviously, the East Coast, I mean, the West Coast.
0: Um, So, yeah, it makes sense to me that the battle was fought on the West Coast. And with exceptional access, river access by sea, and easy to get there and get away as well. I mean, the
1: Wirral has been proposed for a long, long time, and it's been one of the favoured battle sites. And I think that what Wirral archaeology have done has simply nailed it down. and said, yeah, here we are, we've got it.
0: When you're writing these books, do, do you have favourites? You mentioned last time we talked that you were so fond of the, uh, of the young lady that your hero and Shakespeare's brother ended up marrying. My favourite of your books are the three King Arthur books. Is it Keinwin, Derval's first wife? You said that um, she was your favourite character. I mean, do you, still, do you still carry those ones with you?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's terrible not to fall in love with the heroines of your books. I mean, you've got to somehow persuade the reader they're worth falling in love with. But another of my favourites is Lady Grace from Charles Trafalgar. And one of the agonising things about writing that book is that it was written after the earlier book. So she had to die because she's not mentioned in the later books. And that's a bit sad.
0: That uh, is sad. We've got a great question here from Shane, who's one of our History Hit subscribers, who's uh, watching this live stream. When you start off writing a series like The Last Kingdom, have you got a grand outline? Is there some amazing whiteboard somewhere in your dungeon? I just wish. I mean, I just cannot plan a book. I have no idea. When I start a book, I don't know
1: what is going to happen in the next chapter. I did know that it would end at the Battle of Brunenberg because that's obviously a big historical milestone. But that was it. How we got to Brunenberg, I had no idea. And I didn't know whether it would take six books or 12 books. But I envy writers who can plot out a whole book before they begin to write it. It must make the whole
0: business so much easier. I mean, so for example, I was reading this recent one and you're quite, you know, you're not Athelstan, it's not the incredibly attractive figure that he was a couple of books ago. And I wondered to myself, I wondered if Bernard Cornwall was annoyed at himself for making Athelstan too nice when he was a young man. (laughs) Because you've given yourself a mountain to climb now. Do you you, you ever regret the decisions that Bernard made in 2015 or 2014? Oh yes, all the time. I
1: mean, absolutely. I really do find that Characters tend to make up their own mind about things as you're writing. And obviously it's me, but it seems to me that they've decided to do something. And sometimes I wish they hadn't. And, And either you have to go back and rewrite and change their mind, or else you just have to live with it. Athelstan, he was a very nice young man, but I think he becomes, in my book, he becomes seduced by the idea of kingship and by, if you like, the trappings of kingship. He causes a lot of trouble in Britain by trying to impose his authority over men in Scotland, in Wales, who don't want to be dominated by the Saxons. But I think kingship has gone to his head a little bit. He's still a great rumour.
0: It shows. Every time I talk to you, one of the questions that comes up again and again from people is, what tips have you got? There are so many people out there who get in touch saying they're trying to write historical fiction, they dream of doing what you've done. Is there something that, that you've learned that might help people? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Um, do It's the only thing
1: I can say. You just have to do it. And all writing begins with reading. You read as much as you can. And at some point, the sneaky little thought must come into your head that I can do this better. All you can do is sit down and write. You write, I think, initially to please yourself. You write what you want to read. If you love historical novels, then that's probably what you're going to write. And then with any luck, you're off to the races. We hope so.
0: Do you care what historians think about your writing? I have no idea. (laughs) Absolutely
1: no idea. I mean, I imagine that most historians rather resent historical novelists because we go where they aren't allowed to go. You know, we can surmise, we can imagine, we can make things up. On the other hand, I think a lot of people's interest in history is sparked by historical novels. So perhaps their audience only found them through my audience or
0: our audience. Who's your favourite villain that you've created? Because you've created some absolute corkers. Is Obadiah Hakeswell in the show, oh. and the stupidest thing I ever did was
1: to kill him off. I mean, a good villain is worth their weight in gold, and I've often contemplated inventing an identical twin for him called Jedediah Hakeswell, who can come on, but uh, I don't think I'll give in to that temptation.
0: It's a good thought. The sort of the villain reappearing is a very is, hence. Hence, Conan Doyle was furious he'd killed Moriarty off. I'm gonna try and just get one question in from a, a panelist here. Let's have a go, here we go. Fraser. The
1: book I really loved of yours was The Fort. And I just wondered what kind of reaction there was from uh, the American media and public to it because what it did was it portrayed revolutionary heroes in, in a quite a different, and I would say realistic light. And in a kind of follow-on is really any thought of having a kind of follow-on books in that period. I don't think there'll be any more in that series, Fraser. And I'm actually not sure. A lot of Americans said they liked it. And of course, you're quite right. One of the major characters in the book is a huge American hero. But the truth is, and it is true, that he was court-martialed by his own side for cowardice and incompetence. This is Paul Revere. And Paul Revere only fought the British once and it was a disaster. And he was in many ways responsible for that disaster. And what I found extraordinary, really extraordinary, was that his reputation after the revolution soared up into the, you know, the highest levels of myth as a revolutionary hero. And this was all because of Longfellow, the poet, who wrote the great poem, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. And essentially Longfellow made that man into a hero when he was the very opposite. I think he was guilty of cowardice. He was certainly incompetent. And it's just interesting that history can be so distorted. Um, and it was also interesting, of course, that on the British side, there was another man who had a poem written about him. We buried him at dead of night, the sod with our bayonets turning. And that was Sir John Moore. And this was John Moore's very first fight. He was only 19 years old. And I just thought this was rather, rather a nice coincidence that two men about whom great and famous poems were written actually fought each other. I mean, it was a very self-indulgent book. I don't think that Americans much liked it, and I don't suppose they should like it. I mean, none of us <laughs> like it when our heroes are pulled down
0: like that. Thank you very much, Fraser. So, well, thank you very much, Burner for coming on this podcast, You Absolute Legend. What is the name of this final book in the Uhtred of Bedenberg series? It's Warlord. Warlord. Does what it says on the damn tin. Yes, that's right. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye, well, thanks, Dan. hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough out there, Lore of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat,